0: The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe.
1: I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. In today's podcast, we will discuss one of a series of four editorials that are published in the Blue Journal series, opening the debate on the new sepsis definition. Today, I'm joined uh, for our discussion by Dr. Carolyn Calfee and Dr. John Marshall. Dr. Calfee wrote the editorial, Precision Medicine An Opportunity to Improve Outcomes of Patients with Sepsis, that was published in the July 15, 2016 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. She's an associate professor in residence of medicine and anesthesia at the University of California, San Francisco and she is the current chair of the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Dr. Marshall is professor of surgery at the University of Toronto and a trauma surgeon and intensivist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Canada. He's also past chair of the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. So I'd like to start the podcast with a question for Dr. Kalfi. Before we talk about the future of sepsis, I think it would be instructive for our listeners to review some history. Though mortality has improved in septic shock with early appropriate antibiotics and aggressive fluid resuscitation, there are currently no targeted treatments that are part of standard of care for sepsis. And this is based on dozens of negative clinical trials that have shown no benefit for different individual therapies. So why do you think that's the case?
2: Well, Nathan, I think there are many potential reasons for the repeated failures of targeted therapies in sepsis clinical trials. One, of course, is that the drugs that we've selected don't work, and we could probably talk for a long time about the reasons for that, including um, specific animal models uh, and potential problems with those. Another potential reason is that the timing is wrong and that we are giving the right drugs at the wrong time in sepsis. And whether that's because of problems with inclusion and exclusion criteria or problems with our fundamental lack of understanding of the biology of sepsis, uh, either could be the case. That gets to one of the fundamental reasons that I think we have not yet identified a successful targeted therapy for sepsis, which is patient heterogeneity. Now, that heterogeneity can be clinical heterogeneity in terms of site of infection, uh, as a recent paper from Alex Liligdewitz identified. That heterogeneity may be biological in terms of uh, immune activation versus immune suppression over time, or biological heterogeneity between different types of sepsis, or that heterogeneity may be in treatment response. So I think that may be a big contributor to why we haven't identified um, a successful therapy. And then, of course, as mortality improves in sepsis, which is a good thing and something we can all be happy about and our patients can be happy about, of course, it becomes harder then to detect benefits of a potential therapy.
1: Well, thank you for that explanation, Dr. Calfee. I, I do all find it amusing at times when, when we hear presentations at conferences and we say that the mortality was too low. That is actually an accomplishment. Um So, Dr. Marshall, uh, I'd like to to further this discussion with you, um, given your history as a clinical trialist, and you certainly can provide us a perspective looking back at, you know, the promise of the 1970s and 80s when, you know, groups like uh, uh, Bruce Boitler's lab were identifying TNF and then demonstrating the link between endotoxin and TNF and the development of shock and sepsis. And blocking parts of that pathway in animal models, as, as Carolyn alluded to, uh, was, was associated with uh, improved outcomes in those animals. But then, trying to do the clinical trials in humans, the subsequent disappointment of repeated negative trials of these therapies aimed at, aimed at blocking that pathway. So, you know, I, I think as we talk about getting into an era of precision medicine, and, and Dr. Calfi outlined all the challenges of, of a successful trial what are some of the common themes and lessons learned in terms of went, what went wrong um, in those past trials?
0: Well, I agree with many of the uh, comments that uh, Dr. Kelsey has raised on the uh, limitations of uh, approaches to clinical trials in sepsis. I think the Uh, shortcomings over a period of probably 30 years really have been legion and they've been shortcomings of concept, they've been shortcomings of expectation, they've been shortcomings of science, they've been shortcomings of diagnosis. Um, I think first of all the assumption that sepsis is a single disease and a homogeneous disease at at that uh, is as uh, uh, misguided as the concept that cancer is a single disease that could be treated with a single therapy and yet we have under taken every sepsis trial uh, on the assumption that on the basis of very vague generic uh, physiologic criteria and a suspicion of infection, we've identified a population of patients that will benefit from a particular therapy. We've also made the assumption that uh, patients would be equally responsive to any therapy, whether that therapy is immunostimulatory, whether it's targeting a bacterial product such as endotoxin, whether it is targeting a specific uh, host mediator molecule, or whether it's targeting the coagulation cascade—I uh, think it's a uh, overly simplistic assumption, uh, and yet one which we've continued to make in designing uh, uh, trials. I think a, a key problem has been the focus on infection in sepsis while infection is probably the major trigger of the response that we're trying to target it is simply one of a number of triggers that we find and of all of the triggers probably the most uh, challenging to modulate uh, with a strategy that modulates the host inflammatory response because that's the one circumstance where uh, having an inflammatory response can be potentially beneficial i.e. in uh, controlling uh, infection I think we've had uh, some problems with uh, expectations. Uh, The work of Derek Angus uh, from about 15 years ago suggesting that there are three-quarters of a million uh, patients with uh, sepsis uh, in the United States has led uh, to the simplistic view that this is a simple, multi-billion-dollar market uh, for a new therapy. And I think as trials have been done, it's becoming apparent that the actual number of patients that would be treated is substantially smaller uh, than that 750,000 uh, estimate. And then I think there are um, uh, problems with diagnosis, uh, the assumption that we can target a particular specific uh, agent, for example, endotoxin without ending, measuring endotoxin uh, or uh, tumor necrosis factor without measuring tumor necrosis factor, to me is as naive as the idea that we could give insulin without measuring measuring blood sugar uh, to patients with uh, diabetes. So I think we've, we've proceeded on the basis of some fairly sophisticated understanding of biology, some very uh, primitive understanding of epidemiology, and some very uh, underdeveloped and poorly thought out uh, concepts in proceeding in trials. And I think those are really areas that need to be uh, addressed in the future.
1: Well, Dr. Marshall, thank you for summarizing uh, 30 years of, uh, of- failures, and struggles in uh, in about three minutes. So that was, I appreciate that. So, Dr. Marshall, I wanted to follow up regarding these sepsis 3 definitions um, that are the, the point of discussion for these editorials in the Blue Journal. Uh, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and the Society of Critical Care Medicine convened a task course to to reexamine and update the sepsis definitions, given it's been some some time since that's occurred. Um, Could you please tell our listeners about these new sepsis-3 definitions that were published in JAMA earlier this year? So, specifically, what has changed, and do these changes have any impact on future clinical trials of sepsis treatments based on some of the past problems you've already identified?
0: Uh, so the major change has been a uh, shift in the thinking about sepsis, uh, at several different levels. First of all, uh, an abandonment of the concept that sepsis is either a state of hyperinflammation or immunosuppression uh, and rather a suggestion that it should be considered more a state of dysregulation. And secondly, the notion of the consequences of the septic response and that the primary consequence is the development of organ dysfunction. And so the revised definition of sepsis that came out of the Sepsis 3 definition conference is that sepsis is a dysregulated host response response. response that results in uh, organ dysfunction. I think that's an important concept uh, beyond what we have uh, considered in the past, primarily because it emphasizes the fact that when we speak of sepsis, we're talking about a disorder that is detrimental to the host, not one that is adaptive, uh, which the old definitions for sepsis uh, tended to um, incorporate. I think the second uh, major advance with sepsis 3.0 uh, has been the recognition that uh, simply having a group of people sit around a room and agree on criteria uh, doesn't uh, help one to uh, understand biology and that one really has to proceed from uh, data. And so the uh, identification of kind of call-out criteria for patients at an increased risk of an adverse outcome uh, through the QSOFA criteria, I think, is another strength. Uh, Those are uh, respiratory rate greater than 22 breaths per minute, uh, hypotension, and changes in uh, mentation. So I think those are two useful uh, steps forward, perhaps an implicit Third useful step forward has been the recognition that this is an ongoing iterative process and that uh, we are by no means uh, at a point yet where we can say we've adequately defined this uh, complex uh, biologic process. Whether it is going to alter clinical trials, I don't really know, and I don't think the intent. Uh, with these definitions was to change the way we do clinical trials. I think it would be a mistake to simply uh, replace the old use of SERS criteria with the new uh, QSOFA criteria, uh, and all the more so because these are criteria that are primarily applicable to patients on the uh, hospital ward. So I think that however we define the process and however we uh, identify patients who may have it uh, in thinking about uh, trying to modulate that process we really have to be able to measure the factor that we are trying to manipulate and to titrate therapy to
1: optimally uh, accomplish that end well thank you for that uh, detailed explanation dr. Marshall um, and I think that brings us to uh, to uh, dr. Calfew's uh, Blue Journal editorial, um, Dr. Kafi, you mentioned uh, the hope that the organ dysfunction uh, requirement in the new definitions will provide prognostic enrichment for future clinical trials. And the task force did estimate that patients requiring vasopressors to maintain a mean arterial pressure more than 65, who also have a lactate more than 2, despite being adequately resuscitated, have a hospital mortality in excess of 40%. So, I think we can agree that enrolling higher mortality patients, which you alluded to earlier in, in our podcast, will increase the likelihood of showing benefit of a therapy uh, in randomized uh, clinical trials. So, you know, I think Dr. Marshall has, has described some of the, the problems with just using the new definition uh, in, in our future clinical trials and certainly making sure this is an iterative process of reassessment. But, did, do you think, other than Increasing, uh, identifying higher mortality patients, the definition will have any other meaningful impact in helping identify new sepsis treatments?
2: Yeah, so that's a a great question. And I think before we talk about whether or not the, the definition will have an impact on clinical trials outside of prognostic enrichment, it might be helpful just to step back and talk about how prognostic enrichment fits in as a clinical trials enrichment strategy. And so this is one of the three types of clinical trial enrichment strategies that have been recently outlined by the FDA and suggested to try to improve clinical trials. Um, so what are those three types? So the first type is practical enrichment, and that's the type that all trialists sort of set out to do, which is to reduce the noise um, in, in your study design by eliminating, for instance, patients who are unlikely to comply or to follow up. Um, Then the second type of enrichment, which we'll spend more time talking about, I think, later in the podcast is predictive enrichment, where you focus on a particularly treatment responsive subtype. And then the third type, which you're alluding to, is prognostic enrichment. And that's where you really focus on a higher risk group that has higher risk for mortality. But the key for prognostic enrichment is that it will only be effective if the higher mortality in the group that you're enrolling is actually attributable to the condition you're studying, right? If you enroll patients that are at higher risk for mortality for reasons other than the condition under study, then it's not going to particularly help you enrich your clinical trial. And these types of enrichment are nicely outlined in a a perspective piece in the Blue Journal by Hallie Prescott um, in a recent issue. So how does this relate to the new sepsis definition? So the new definitions by incorporating this requirement for organ failures, as Dr. Marshall uh, just so nicely outlined, may result in prognostic enrichment if those organ failures are due to sepsis themselves, uh, therefore potentially allowing us to detect uh, a benefit of a novel therapy. Now you also asked, will these new definitions have a tangible impact aside from prognostic enrichment? And I think that's more of an open question. Um, As Dr. Marshall uh, alluded to in his earlier response, I think until we really target the underlying biology in sepsis, uh, it's going to be hard to find a new biological treatment um, that is more effective. And these new definitions while recognizing the biologic complexity, don't specifically address that in and of themselves.
1: Well, thank you for giving our listeners uh, a discussion of the different types of enrichment, and you've let me segue nicely to a discussion of predictive enrichment. So um, you, uh, your group has done some of the important work toward this goal of, of precision medicine and sepsis, um, and I think some of the, the discussion that you and, and Dr. Marshall have already had um, in terms of dif- identifying a phenotype, a hyperinflammatory phenotype of ARDS patients with higher mortality than those that lacked the clinical and laboratory characteristics of that hyperinflammatory group. So while we're trying to overcome the obstacles you mentioned and really understand this better, The near-term future of, quote-unquote, precision sepsis care, is it identifying high-risk patients with readily available, you know, real-time clinical and laboratory tests as opposed to using more advanced cutting-edge techniques um, that may not be ready for real-time value and um, trying higher-risk therapies in these high-risk subgroups of septic patients or... Do you see another paradigm entirely?
2: So I think the idea of precision medicine for sepsis and or for ARDS um, should be a goal that we aim for. Um, but whether it's a really a near-term goal or not, I'm not quite sure. I think these are early days uh, for precision medicine and critical care and they're exciting days because I think there's so much potential, but I think they're early days and and so what do we need to get there? Well, I think first we need a better understanding of the biology, and certainly we've made huge advances in the past couple of decades in our understanding of the fundamental biology of sepsis and ARDS. Um, but I think we still have a long way to go, uh, both in terms of understanding these biological processes, and particularly the heterogeneity within these syndromic diagnoses um, that really are not a specific disease, um, but understanding that biological heterogeneity so that we know what to target. And at the same time as we're studying that, then we need to develop, as you're alluding to, practical point-of-care testing that can be used to target these patients. Now, some of those technologies are actually readily available, um, but are not widely available in terms of clinical utility or or not at the point from a cost-effectiveness angle that they're practical. But the technology exists. And I would just add one other comment. I think you mentioned higher-risk therapies. Um, And I see it not so much as trying higher-risk therapies, but instead trying targeted therapies that are really directed at the underlying biology and specific patients.
1: Uh, Yeah, fair enough to say that the the appropriate targets for those high-mortality patients. Uh, Thank you for pointing that out. Um, Dr. Marshall, uh, so just to, to continue that discussion, in terms of, I think, both you and, and Dr. Kalfi agree. Before we go jumping into things, uh, a better understanding of the biology uh, is important, and, and clearly that it's easier said than done to implement precision medicine in sepsis. You know, developing targeted treatments with the degree of heterogeneity that you both have already discussed, and the fact that septic shock is dynamic and the patient is changing clinically in a matter matter of uh, hours, let alone days it's much more difficult to implement than in diseases such as, for example, a lung cancer in which patients tend to be clinically stable and, and some targeted therapies have, have already been identified. Now, I, I think um, Carolyn was alluding to some of the advanced techniques that are available in some centers, and people published about genome-wide expression profiling to identify phenotypes, and that was described, the paper was more than five years ago now. Um, but I, we don't appear to be a point where we can do this sort of that this sort of laboratory testing at the point of care broadly in real time. And clearly that, that would be needed to truly target treatment at a point of time, and the point of time really matters, obviously, in sepsis. So as we go forward and we are trying to get a better understanding of the biology, how far away do you think we are from having such advanced techniques available for bedside treatment of septic patients? And and in the interim, is, just, is our approach just to continue to better understand this biology?
0: Uh, So I think it's important to acknowledge that we are uh, at the beginning of a process. Um, I think the outcomes of the ongoing failures of sepsis trials has been the recognition that we need to be thinking in a somewhat more sophisticated manner about this. But at the same time, I think we have to be careful and not become overly seduced or overly swayed uh, by uh, technology because I think we can be closer to being able to target therapy to the appropriate patient than we might uh, actually believe. For example, we use targeted therapy right now in the management of sepsis uh, every day, uh, and that's in the form of antibiotics. We take uh, cultures and we look at antibiotic susceptibility and we give the antibiotic for which the organism uh, is uh, sensitive. Um, And that's a form of targeted therapy and it's a form of effective treatment uh, for uh, sepsis. I think our challenge is to figure out what other uh, measures might give us the insight into guiding the selection of one or more specific therapies. And I think there's even been some uh, evidence that we have made some modest successes uh, in that direction. Uh, An example is the uh, MONARCH study. It was a trial of an antibody to tumor necrosis factor uh, that was conducted in the uh, late 1990s. It showed an overall uh, mortality benefit which was just at the 0.05 level uh, for statistical significance and the uh, uh, therapy was never carried forward. But the uh, hypothesis of the study was that an enrichment process could be used by measuring interleukin-6 levels in those patients and that patients with high interleukin-6 levels would be more likely uh, not only to be at risk of an adverse outcome but to benefit from neutralization of TNF. It was actually that endpoint that was statistically significant and if you looked at the cutoff that was used which was a thousand picograms per mil uh, the effect was relatively small but if you looked at a higher cutoff uh, say around 10,000 picograms per mil there was a much greater separation of the curves between uh, the treated and non-treated patients. So I think it's a hypothesis that is not not been tested again, but certainly Merit's testing, that we could target anti TNF therapies uh, for patients who show evidence of an overactive inflammatory response reflected in an elevated IL six level. Um, Similar if you look at oncology, the success of cancer therapies has been uh, based on the ability to demonstrate the, the presence of the abnormality that the therapy targets. So the uh, uh, HER2 new receptor in patients with uh, breast cancer identifies a population of patients who benefit from Herceptin, but equally, uh, that's a very effective drug in some patients with breast cancer that has absolutely no utility at all in patients, for example, with uh, colon cancer. So I think the capacity to measure things is present, and if we measure those parameters that specifically reflect the activity of the pathway or uh, mediator that we're targeting, I think we're going to be in a position where we could actually begin to define
1: some much more rational uh, targeted treatment studies. So, Dr. Calfee, just to follow up on what Dr. Marshall was saying, and I think this is kind of the the most interesting thing going forward, it's uh, getting a better understanding of the biology so we can phenotype patients and also uh, identify uh, treatments and maybe use uh, rational biomarkers that are related to to that treatment. Um, And I guess that's the exciting thing over the next, you know, five to ten years, Hopefully, uh, and I'd ask your thoughts on this question in terms of phenotyping. Um, so, do you think? I assume the answer is going to be a little bit of everything. But in terms of what you see going forward, is it um, you know genome-wide expression profiles? Is it a single biomarker or a panel of biomarkers uh, related to the therapy? Um, and and in addition. Where do you see, in terms of what are, what's holding us back from getting a better understanding? Do we have the setup in terms of uh, biorepository infrastructure to do this and really understand things so we can get to a point of precision medicine?
2: Yeah. So to answer the first part of the question, in terms of which specific technologies Uh, and or biomarkers will be um, the most useful. I think it it depends on the pathway under study, as Dr. Marshall was saying. I think there uh, is growing technological ability to perform many of these assays in a clinically actionable time. So, for instance, the technology to do specific transcriptomic profiling of uh, targeted gene expression can be done now in 8 to 12 hours. Um, Many ELISA's um, can be translated to point-of-care tests but just have not been translated in a manner that's widely available and cost-effective. Likewise, molecular diagnostics for pathogen identification, for instance, which Dr. Marshall also was alluding to as an example of, of targeted therapy but even getting uh, culture-independent methods of identifying pathogens in a much shorter amount of time, the technology for doing that is rapidly advancing. So I think on many different fronts that the technology is going to be there, and we need to know... Um, what biology we are trying to target. And its it, I think it's a little bit of a catch-22 in that um, we need to identify the biology and we need to do the prospective clinical trials based on biology, as Dr. Marshall was saying. It's hard to do those without widely available point-of-care testing, and it's hard to get the widely available point-of-care testing until the need has been demonstrated. So it's, it's a little bit of a catch-22 there, and, and what's going to break that cycle, I'm not entirely sure. Your second question, I think, was about biosample repositories um, and whether we have the infrastructure in place um, to – support these biorepositories so that we can advance the field? And I think the, the answer is um, as many things yes and no. I think there are some well characterized um, and modestly large biosample repositories, but we certainly need more. Uh, we need more funding to support these. And we also need more diversity. So we need uh, biosample repositories that really reflect the diversity of our patients, uh, the diversity of settings in which sepsis develops so that we can really capture the whole range of, uh, of biologic and clinical heterogeneity. And I would also say that I would want to put in a particular plug for the value of biosample repositories within randomized controlled trials. Because it's really within randomized controlled trials that we can begin to do our first systematic evaluation of differential response to therapies, because that's why we really care about heterogeneity in sepsis, about endotypes of sepsis and ARDS, is because we think there may be differential response to therapies. And the best way to try to evaluate that is within, obviously, a randomized setting where the treatment is randomly assigned. So I think the more that we as a critical care community can come together to um, encourage and support biosample repositories and randomized control trials, the faster we'll be able to advance towards this goal of more precision medicine and critical care.
1: Well, thank you for that uh, thoughtful response, Dr. Calfian and, and uh, I think that, um, you know, it, it's an incredibly important point you bring up about um, making sure you ask for the funding. It's hard enough to do a, a, a critical care trial, but certainly collecting those blood samples and being able to go back and study those patients to, to really get a better understanding of bio, biology and identifying uh, uh, different phenotypes certainly Given the degree of heterogeneity you both have described is incredibly important. So then, Dr. Marshall, we're sort of winding up the podcast here, but we just started talking about past failures of sepsis trials and the lessons that were learned from them, and you described several of them. So rather than speculating on, on specific therapies, I would ask you, you know, in addition to what Dr. Calfee just mentioned, what are some of the most important next steps needed to really get to a point over the next, say, 10 to 20 years where we can implement precision uh, sepsis therapy?
0: Well, I would agree with
1: uh, Dr. Kelsey's argument that
0: what we really need is uh, platforms for collaboration uh, to uh, move this field forward. I think oncologists would probably argue that they've not uh, made anything like the kind of steps they would want to make in oncology over the last perhaps 50 years or so uh, that multimodal therapy for cancer has been developing, but I think compared to what we've managed to do in the field of sepsis, their gains have been really quite uh, enormous, and I think they provide us a nice template to think about how we might move forward. the development of effective multimodal therapy in, in uh, cancer was not on the basis of the work of any one individual scientist or any one individual company, uh, company that was producing a new therapy, but was really the product of some large-scale national and international collaborations to better describe uh, and stage cancer and to uh, understand the biology and target effective therapies to that biology. And I think the problem we're facing in sepsis is that our Biologic and conceptual challenges several or- orders of magnitude uh, greater than what is seen in cancer for all of the reasons that have been uh, elaborated over the course of this uh, podcast. So I think probably the single most important thing, and it really is a an objective whose time frame has to be measured in decades and not in years, is the development of large-scale uh, investigator-driven uh, collaborations that will bring uh, not only investigators from around the world, but uh, companies with an interest in this, uh, together on a uh, single uh, objective of trying to uh, come up with appropriate means of describing and staging uh, patients with sepsis and identifying uh, appropriate uh, targets for therapy and appropriate therapies once those targets have been identified. And so I think... The process of uh, doing that requires uh, some intensive natural history studies, and I would comment that, in fact, some of these are now being done. Uh, The Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam has just completed a 7,000-patient study that should provide some really good uh, natural history study. But 7,000 patients is really a drop in the bucket, and I think we really need natural history studies that recruit hundreds of thousands of patients so we can really begin to resolve some of the heterogeneity here. And I would completely agree that... uh, large-scale biobanks in the same way that oncologists have developed tumor banks and randomized controlled trials because of the complexities of uh, drawing inferences using any uh, experimental methodology uh, less than that of a randomized controlled trial is critical to do that and it's an expensive uh, undertaking it's an important undertaking because this is a major cause of uh, morbidity uh, around the globe um, But I think if there was one thing that we need, it's a shift from the idea that we are identifying one particular therapy by one particular company or one investigator to a concept where we have a global uh, collaboration to try to address this in an integrated uh, manner. Thank you
1: both for an excellent discussion. It's clearly a daunting task to implement real-time precision medicine in critically ill septic patients. And we are in the very early stages of attempting to do this. The first step that is underfoot uh, is moving away from assumptions that plague prior trials of sepsis, such as treating sepsis as a single disease for enrollment, and thinking that all enrolled patients will be equally responsive to a single therapy without relevant lab or clinical data to suggest their responsiveness to that therapy. The next steps to precision medicine in sepsis include taking a more sophisticated approach in identifying endotypes of patients who are more likely to respond to a particular treatment and to do this in part by developing diverse biosample repositories within current and future sepsis randomized clinical trials. I'm Nitin Seem for The Blue Journal. Thanks for
2: listening.